So this class is about complex technologies. Um, and I guess I should explain at the beginning what I mean by complex technologies because um, even as I was putting this together, I realized the concept is a little bit fuzzy. Um, what I mean is really any technology where rabbis are not entirely familiar with the way it operates. Um, and we're going to look at examples where both where they're um, admitting that they don't know how it operates and examples where they really don't know how it operates, but they don't know that they don't know how it operates. Um, what it's important to remember for the pre-modern period is that um, technologies themselves were mostly pretty simple um, by modern standards. I mean, like if you think about the kind of sophistication that goes into a microchip, um, that is incredible. Medieval technologies, ancient technologies are just not at that level. Um, but that doesn't mean there can still be confusion and there can still be things that the rabbis don't know about those technologies. Um, and I think like, it's just a good way of, of, phrasing, of framing that is um, this Mikrash and Tamura. Um, once a heretic... Oh, I'm sorry, you don't have a search sheet. Um, once a heretic, Haman said to Rabbi Akiva, who created the world? He said to him, the Holy One, blessed be he. He said to him, show me a clear proof. He said to him, come to me tomorrow. He came back the next day. Rabbi Kiva asked him, what are you wearing? He said to him, a garment. He said to him, who made it? He said to him, the weaver. He said to him, I don't believe you. Show me a clear proof. He said to him, what can I show you? Don't you know that the weaver made it? He said to him, but you, don't you know that God made the world? The heretic left. Uh, Rabbi Kiva won, heretic zero. His students asked him, but what is the clear proof? He said to them, my sons, just as the house informs of its builder, and a garment informs of its weaver, and a door informs of its carpenter, thus the whole world informs of the Holy One, blessed be he, um, created it. That he created it. Sorry, that, be, that he created it. Um, does this, you may have seen this before, does this argument sound familiar? Yeah, I mean, it's a, one of the classic medieval arguments for the existence of God. Right. And so how is it, like, in, in the version that you heard, how is it framed? Um... How could there be such a complex uh, universe without a creator? Right. And there's um, a, a particular item which is often quoted as like a parallel. Yeah. You mean in modern times, are you talking about like, the eye? Is that what you're the, uh, no. Um, the watches. The uh, clocks. Oh, yeah. Um, right. it's, this is oh, like, you're talking about first, first movement. Yeah, when, when, this, when this argument is described, um, the cosmological argument for God's existence is described, it's often called... Is that what, that's what it's called, cosmological? This is the cosmological argument. Um, it's often called the, um, the watchmaker argument. There's like watchmaker analogy. Um, now, <clears throat> Rabbi Kiva doesn't use watches because uh, this Midrash... I mean, this Midrash is quite late. It's actually the 13th century. But even in the 13th century... Um, clocks, watches of that sophistication don't actually exist yet. Um, so he is thinking of, for what his time, are sophisticated technologies, and those are doors and houses and garments. Um, so this is just by way of saying that sophistication is a relative thing, um, that for Rabbi Kiva it means this, for us it might mean something else, um, but that they both qualify. And I think, like, it's also just a helpful source to note that there's sources about technology everywhere. Like, this is clearly not a source about technology. Like, this is a source about God's existence. Um, but there's little bits and pieces you can pick up everywhere. Um, last week when we talked about automation, the, the major area where automated technologies have an impact is Shabbat. Um, for complex technologies, the major area, area where there is um, a uh, halakhic effect is with food. Uh, around Kashrut in particular. Um, any thoughts about why that might be? Say it again, which kinds of technologies are? So complex, anytime when there's, where, where there's complex technologies, or very often complex technologies, um, you end up with interesting discussions around food, around um, halachot that are connected to food. Because to know if something's kosher, you need to know what's in it. Right, so just the, the way food works is you end up with an end product and you have to, um, you know, and food is classified as being either edible or, you know, 
halakhic, you know, permissible to eat, not permissible to eat, um, and the process by which it got to you is opaque. Um, and so inevitably you're going to end up with a lot of technologies which modify that process where you're going to have to go in and figure out, well, what is it doing to the food? Does not matter to the end result? Um, this has happened for a long time, and um, a really interesting example of uh, an early um, attempt to deal with the way in which food is opaque shows up in this newspaper article uh, from this British publication called The Voice of Jacob in the mid-19th century. And so um, this, the problem that this person presents is a problem that's you know, you know, familiar to you, I think. Um, he says, it's the unlawful adulteration of food. Does someone want to read this one? From Mart, uh, actually, it's from January 19, 1844. Um, our letterbox, unlawful adulterations of food. Mr. Editor, will you please to confer benefit on the Jewish community by stating publicly in your valuable journal that our food is adulterated to an alarming extent with those matters which we as Hebrews are strictly prohibited to eat. I have lately seen what is publicly sold as the best fresh butter mixed with half hog's lard and that in the most respectable butter merchants' establishments. In my own line, bit, what, what is that? Namely. Namely, okay, namely, the oil trade. The adulterations are beyond all conception. Could you not call on some scientific persons among us, and I hope there are many, to make known the best means of detecting these spurious articles, oils in particular? For I am sure one who does it will be entailed to the highest respect of the community generally. Your obedient servant, J.W. Levy, Bristol, 15 January, 1844. Hmm. I wish you had done it in a British accent, but that was okay. I love that like, he's, he's just so indignant. Yeah, he's just yeah. so, like, and it's, it's, it's really a big problem. Like, there's butter mixed with hog butter. You can't have that, and no one's telling you. So what's, what's interesting about about how he's writing this letter and how he's trying to get this problem resolved. He doesn't ask a rabbi. Right. He's sending in an article to uh, a journal editor. And what kind of answer does he want to get? Scientific. Yeah. Yeah. He wants a scientist to tell him how to figure out whether he's being sold butter that is mixed with hog's lard. Um, and lo and behold, a couple months later, there's a reply in the magazine written by a certain Van Halen, sorry, Van Helmont. Um, and he... Not a Hebrew. Not a Hebrew. Um, and he presents didn't a... Didn't need to be. Didn't, no. There's no reason. Exactly. Um, and he presents this this reply. Uh, if you look on page two, um, in the second box, test. Put a portion of the suspected oils into Wolf's bottles and pass it through sulfuretted hydrogen gas and the black precipitate will come down will collect and place below, before the blowpipe a globule of metallic... Like you get the idea. Like, yeah, he is presenting this very careful and pretty difficult operation to figuring out how, how to figure out um, whether oils have been adulterated. And then he does the same thing on the next page, in page three. Um, to detect lard and butter requires such a peculiar apparatus, and the process of analyzation is so very delicate that no person but an exper experienced analytic chemist would be successful in the experiment. I will, however, give a few of the leading principles. And then he goes on and explains how uh -huh. you do this. So th these are very complicated ideas. Um, but it's, it's worth thinking about, uh, I think, because this is a way of going about kashrut that is not hefters. That is not, let's go into the plant and see what they're doing. It's, after the fact, let's figure out how to test what we've received to figure out if it's, if it's edible or not. <clears throat> So, um, someone who is, you know, who approaches kashrut in this way would certainly find acceptable a, an authority verifying that something is vegetarian or vegan. Right? Mm. Because it's not about a Jewish authority. It's about an authority that can verify the context. Even though I've always thought of kashrut as just as much about mm. the mm. preparation and the origins as what you're left with. Right. Yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that, that makes a lot. Yeah, I mean, is this going to tell you if the you know butter was prepared in the kitchen where you right. know the, the lard is next to it but doesn't mix with it? No, but that's uh, right. So those kind of like second order considerations um, and concerns do not seem to play into this. And also, like this kind of test only works for certain pretty basic things like butter and oil. You know, if you get to you know Oreo cookies. Um, it gets much more difficult to figure out. And also, like, you have to know in advance what might be in it that is problematic. Um, so it only goes so far. But that being said, 
uh, it's an interesting approach. And if we, uh, this is not, not the only instance where there are lay people asking scientists to solve their problems. Let's skip ahead um, to page, uh, page 10. Um, and I couldn't find the, the newspaper article here. Um, but this is a synopsis of it. Um, there's a, a London-based newspaper called the Jewish Chronicle, which actually still runs today. Um, in 1892, there was um, a series of letters in the paper uh, where someone asked about um, Sabbath observance and electricity um, and whether electricity was problematic in terms of Sabbath observance. And the response, and they asked for a scientist to tell them, is electricity fire? Uh, because presumably, a scientist is the person who would know that. Um, you might know that there's a similar story told about Richard Feynman going to JTS um, and being like, kind of surprised and a little bit disappointed that the only reason that these rabbinical students care about physics was because they wanted to know whether a light bulb was fire. But that, that story, which I think happened in the 60s and the 70s, is predated by quite a bit. Um, and here it, it seems to be happening in a pretty earnest way. It's not just like, oh, you know, you got to ask Richard Feynman, he's here. Um, so Professor Crooks answers this question. Um, he says... This is like six lines down. It is a rule of the Jewish religion that on the Sabbath day no fire may be kindled. The observant Jews obey this law very strictly and abstain from any act which directly or indirectly can cause the production of fire or the consumption of anything by fire. The following acts, for instance, are abstained from touching fire, lighting or extinguishing fire, striking matches, blah, 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 blah. Um, the end of the page, sorry, the end of that column. The question was, would a man be transgressing these rules of conduct by switching off or on an, elect an electric glow lamp? Professor Crooks replies, the word fire and flame have, all, have in all ages and countries been associated with the idea of what we now term combustion. That is, the rapid union of the atmospheric oxygen which, with combustible material, which in the majority of cases would be compounds of carbon and hydrogen. The carbon burns to carbonic acid and the hydrogen to water, both going off into the atmosphere in an invisible form. Historical research shows that this, the sacredness of fire and flame is the old Eastern religions, in the old Eastern religions, was intimately connected with combustion. And, sub and consequent purification. All the instances of acts to be abstained from given above involve combustion and flame. The modern glow lamp has no connection, direct or indirect, with fire, flame, or combustion. Um, and what's curious about that response is he kind of like does make a little bit of a religious claim by saying old yeah. Eastern religions care about combustion. Um, this, there's actually a whole series of letters after this, people saying, like, wait a minute, like, why are you answering this question for us? So it's not like everyone was doing this. There was some debate about it, but um, um, the person who wrote the question ends up writing, you know, writing another letter saying, defending his question and defending the fact that um, it was worth asking a scientist about this. Cool. Um, back to food. So we have, um, as one way of dealing with um, with complexity in food, um, doing tests after the fact. Um, the more standard way, the way we know about it, is hexers, um, that there is somebody certifying that these are kosher. Um, and hexers have been around for a while. Um, it seems like the earliest example of a hexer um, is in the story of Hanukkah. Um, in the story of Hanukkah, you have here, um, so... Uh, this is page three. So the Hashmanaim, they go into the temple and they find that all, all the oil is smashed and there's only one bottle of pure oil left. And how do they know it's pure? Because Because there's the seal of the Kohen Gadol on it. So presumably those seals are in place to indicate some kind of purity. And actually we have, um, in the archaeological record, we have examples of such seals. Um, so we can say this is the first example of Echshar. And so, does that suggest there was there was other oil, but it was not usable? Yes. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, right. Like it, they had one day's worth of oil, originally, and well, they had one day's worth of of, of hexer. Right, that's oil. my point. Like, I don't think it would take in Israel twenty four hours to find like find or make oil somewhere. Right. The issue is. Kind of oil. Oh. It. So now you're getting into like the whole like how the story is so problematic. Like right. in emergencies, you can use impure oil yeah. because it takes so long, right? But yeah, no. for the for the sake of the story, yeah. um, so that's an early example. Um, and the the point of having a hexer there is um, you do care about the process. You care about exactly how this oil is formed, and it's not something you can figure out after the fact. Um, you also see this happen a lot with cheese production. 
um, because cheese production is something which uh, there's very specific rules um, about the kinds of the methods that can be used. And also, it is entirely possible to produce cheese um, while using um, animal products, which would render the cheese non-kosher, and you would not be able to taste it. I wonder if you'd be able to do a chemical test on it, but you certainly wouldn't be able to taste it. Um, in the Middle Ages, this shows up because the Karaites and the rabbis have different ideas about what constitutes kosher cheese. Um, and so there needs to be some kind of system whereby a Karaite, who have, they have the more lenient rules on this one, can certify this cheese is kosher by rabbinite standards. Um, and so if you look at the, um, this fragment from the Geniza, if you look at the whole on the left side of the page, and look at the kind of like, you know, on the top left of that hole, you can see the word kasher. Hmm. And that is the key word in this page. The whole, the whole rest of it is, um, as you see the translation below, this very long note explaining that Mr. Faraji Kohen, who is a Karite, um, is a, he's a Sicilian merchant, um, and they indicate that there is this sale of 160 jarwi pounds of Sicilian cheese, and that um, it's kosher, and he's going to travel somewhere else. And so this is a way that he can kind of certify on his travels um, that, uh, that his cheese is fine. So the assumption is, or I don't know the assumption, the implication is that if it was a rabbinite traveling salesman, he would be trustworthy even without a hatcher. I think so. I need to check whether the rab- rabbinites also get, um, get hatchers for their cheeses. Um, I think they might. I think cheeses in general are considered to be suspect. Considered to be the, the kind of things that you need to be careful about. <clears throat> uh, well, the best source I've ever seen along these lines, which I suggest you look for next time you're in New York, on, on the shelves of the synagogue that houses Yeshiva Nadar, there is a, or three years ago, there was a book. It's like a guide to New York Jewish life dated approximately 100 years ago. I don't remember exactly when. And in terms of kashrut, it said that, you know, under no circumstances should you buy food from a butcher or eat in a restaurant that proclaims in a neon sign that it is kosher. Absolutely not. You, mm-hmm. know, you should go by what you trust and what you've heard from the community. And of course, the best place to shop is where the Redison shops. Mm-hmm. But, you know, beyond that, you don't go by the big sign. Right. So that's great because that's an approach that says you don't actually need to know the inside scoop on everything. You just need to kind of follow these general guidelines, and that's fine. Whereas these sources seem to indicate, no, I actually really do need to know what happened. I need to know how the sausage was made, so to speak, or how the cheese was made, um, because otherwise I can't, I can't consume this food. So all the sources we've seen so far are pretty adamant that I need to know that backstory. Um, but, I mean, I know, like, my grandparents told me that, you know, well, we just looked at the ingredients list, and that was fine. And what, what do I care about? Um, so... You have these hefsters, um, and as we asked about whether rabbinites needed to have these hefsters too, um, I think they did, and part of the reason is because people are not always trustworthy, um, and you still you still kind of care about whether um, the person's telling the truth about what they did. Um, and this is not just a medieval problem. It was a problem in the 20th century too. It's still a problem of people passing off their meat, uh, butcher's cat, passing off non-kosher meat as kosher meat. Um, and so... Like the Heksher, um, in the early 20th century, there was an invention of a little tag that goes on a bird's leg um, called a plumba. And you see here an advertisement for them uh, by a manufacturer of plumbas, um, indicating like why these are important. They cost only one penny each, and um, put them on your chickens, and they're a way of indicating that, um, yes, in fact, your chicken is, is kosher. Um, so this is not just... Because you can just buy these and put them on the... I think there's probably some way, you know, they regulated how they were sold. Um, or, or either that or they were being sold to rabbis to, yeah. to give out. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, as opposed to the system above, which is, you know, a kind of hexer for the person, like in this particular sale, this is a hexer on the bird itself. Like every single bird gets um, personal certification. So um, you see... Um, and we'll see further, there's this kind of gradual uh, attempt to make kosher certification more and more precise so that there's less and less room for, um, for error, for fraud. Um, and so by having every chicken have one of these things on it, that's a way of dealing with that. Um, 
the best example that I know of this process, and it's an example where uh, you can see the entire um, evolution of the way the rabbis come to understand a technology, is with Coca-Cola and the capturing of Coca-Cola. Um, Coca-Cola um, was uh, uh, was not founded. What's the word? Was invented. Coca-Cola was invented in 1886, same year that Vilna Shas was completed. Um, and it's it was, seems to have been drunk by Jews from basically the very beginning, um, without any concern of its kosher status. Now, to be fair, the idea of human beings manufacturing a beverage that is not like wine or beer or water um, it was relatively new. Um, and so I think the idea that this might not be kosher was probably something that took a while to, to come to. Um, that being said, at some point in the 1930s, there started being questions about, okay, is this thing kosher? Um, so there's this journal, um, Hapardes, uh, it was published out of Chicago, and it featured articles um, about things like this, and also lots of really cool advertisements, the um, advertisement on the previous pages from this. Um, and the editor of the newspaper writes this um, kind of, you know, I don't know if it's an editorial or an advertorial, because it's <laughs> so, um, uh, it, it's so effusive, and also because if you look on the next page, um, there's an advertisement for Coca-Cola in the same publication. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to tell. Uh, it's also a really cool advertisement because uh, it uses, like, like, drink Coca-Cola. So beautiful. Um, but he, So he says in this piece, he gives a whole history of Coca-Cola, Pemberton and all that, um, and towards the end, um, he says, it's kosher, and this is how you know. Um, the beverage is pure and fruity. Is on the next page. Um, and th- this is the last few paragraphs in Hebrew. Um, major well-known chemists have already extolled its virtues, and the High Court of America, Supreme Court in Hebrew letters, has judged favorably its purity. The beverage is entirely kosher, and these are the natural basic ingredients from which the Coca-Cola beverage is constructed. Pure water, filtered many times over, 89.305%. Pure sugar, 10.199%. Fruit juice extract, uh, 0.435%. And and oxidizing ingredient found in all plants, um, 0.055%, and tea leaf extract, 0.015%, in total 100%. Now, you might wonder, where does he get these numbers from? <laughs> this, is like, this seems to be very precise. So, a Google search um, of 89.305% Coca-Cola um, <laughs> gives you this picture um, of um, a hmm. demonstration of Coca-Cola, and it turns out that this is like a modern um, description of the ingredients, that the percentages are exactly the same. The one's different. <laughs> The one is slightly different, that's true. Um, um, one is slightly different. Um, and interestingly as well, this is, uh, I can only find Spanish language websites that have these numbers. And that might be because um, Mexican, well, because Mexican yeah. Coca-Cola is formulated a little bit differently. Um, and it's the original formulation. So, um, so he's basically just reading the ingredients. He's saying like, I look at the ingredients, this is what it is, so it's, it's kosher. Um, Thus, well-known chemists have concluded that Coca-Cola is free of any prohibited mixture and is fitting to serve on the table of kings. That is actually cool, because Coca-Cola is often quoted as being, like, the equalizing drink. Like, you know, everyone has the same code. It doesn't matter how rich or poor you are. Um, so he's kind, of, he's kind of right about that. There are in this beverage only natural vegetable ingredients. Okay, so it's kosher, right? Um, he lives in Chicago. Coca-Cola is based in Atlanta. He's never seen the plant. He has no idea anything about the manufacturing process. He has no idea about the secret ingredients, which even then people knew that Coke had secret ingredients. Um, so, how how does he understand kosher? Like, what what idea of kosher lies behind this this uh, this argument? This hefsher ingredients. Yeah, it's just ingredients, and it's just and it's also. Um, very charitable towards the companies, right? It's the ingredients that they say are in it, um, without thinking maybe that they're not mm-hmm. correct. Actually, no. The truth of the matter is, he says, you know, the chemists in the Supreme Court have already figured out for us. Yeah, he doesn't right, only right. trust the right. company. Uh, I was trying to figure out which Supreme Court case this is. I'm not sure. If you <laughs> figure it out, um, let me know. There are a number of Supreme Court cases involving Coca-Cola before this. So that's kind of phase one. Phase two, and this is the most famous Jew by Coca-Cola, is by Rabbi Tuvia Geffen, who was a rabbi in Atlanta. 
Um, Grandfather of Rella Geffen, who... Really? BI, yeah. Cool. Um, they're, uh, it's, it's an amazing tuba. Um, and what's nice about it, from my perspective, is it was already translated, um, because they issued it along with it their own translation. Um, so, he's arriving in Atlanta. The, from what I understand, he also had some ties to the Cope family, meaning he had, like, some special access. Um, and so he writes, in the bottom of page 7, uh, Desh, do you want to read this? Sure. In the year 5695, 1935, an inquiry was addressed to me concerning the well-known soft drink Coca-Cola, which is manufactured in the city of Atlanta, Georgia. Is it kosher for drinking during the entire year and on Passover? After thorough inquiry and investigation at the factory, it became apparent to me that the drink was made from a variety of plant syrups, a secret formula known only to certain officials of the company. Moreover, this drink contained in its composition several other types of liquids, one of which I am designating as Morris and the other as Anagram. So these words, Morris, these are um, Mishnaic terms, and they have nothing to do with the actual ingredients. And the reason he's using them is because when he wrote this shuva, an attorney um, informed him that it was probably better if he did not use the names of the actual ingredients uh, in his shuva. So, I don't How did you find that piece of information out? Uh, there's an article about, about this shuva and about the process of certification of Coca-Cola, which writes about this. Um, so uh, I think more is actually glycerin. Um, they're, not, they're not actually like the most secret ingredients. Uh, but I don't know of any other situations where a chufa is directly um, affected by the possibility of litigation. Mm. Okay. Although, I'm sure there are plenty. Oh, there might be plenty. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the M. The, Mor- the Morris. The Morris. The M is a liquid product made from meat and fat tallow of non-kosher animals. It is an item which Jews are forbidden to eat and drink. Certain employees of the Coca-Cola company estimated that the percentage of the M ingredient in the drink was of a very minute proportion in the ratio of 1 to 1,000. I validated this assertion by submitting a random sample of Coca-Cola to the chief chemist of the state of Georgia for a thorough chemical examination. His analysis confirmed the fact that the percentage of M in the mixture was indeed 1 to 1,000. In view of the foregoing, it is not only very difficult to sanction the drinking of Coca-Cola throughout the year, but it is even more difficult to do so for Passover. This problem arises because in its processing, the employees insert and mix the ingredient A, which is made from chametz, since any amount of chametz in a mixture prohibits its use on Passover, it is expressly forbidden to drink Coca-Cola on this holiday. Because Coca-Cola has already been accepted by the general public in this country and in Canada, and because it has become an insurmountable problem to induce the great majority of Jews (laughs) to refrain from partaking of this drink, I have tried earnestly to find a method of permitting its usage. With the help of God, I have been able to uncover a pragmatic solution according to which there would be no question nor any doubt concerning the ingredients of Coca-Cola. This solution came to my mind when it was revealed to me by some of the expert chemists that the M could also be prepared from plant oil, such as that made from coconut, cottonseed oil, and other plants. Obviously, M made from any of these plants is kosher to drink. If one utilizes the mixture M made from plants, Coca-Cola is absolutely permissible since it does not contain prohibited elements of any sort. Now, in regards to the prohibition of its use on Passover because of the question of chametz, I discovered that it is possible to prepare A not from grain kernels, but instead from sugar beets or sugar cane. Um, With A made in this way, there is no apprehension whatsoever concerning the possibility of the inclusion of chametz in Coca-Cola, even in the minutest quantity. Acting on my advice at that time, the officials of the factory began to use only M prepared from cottonseed oil. Likewise, during the Passover season, they utilized A made from sugar cane. It is not possible for the most stringent halachists to enjoy Coca-Cola throughout the year and on Passover. I thank God for the opportunity that he has given me, making it possible to protect the general Jewish public from eating a mixture composed of tallow, a sin punishable by excommunication, and from eating chametz on Passover. This matter is firmly established, and it has become possible for those who have been eating that which is forbidden to eat that which is permitted. Thank you. That was very long. It's amazing. Was, yeah. There's but so it, much in this shiva. Yeah, but it changed the, the formula for Coca-Cola. Right? Yeah. Isn't that like the most, yeah. like, you know, awesome shiva to ever read? It's yeah. like, there's a problem, and I already fixed it. <laughs> but how could it... Assuming that it actually 
that actually happened. Right. Yeah. Like, how, could the co- how could the company actually agree to that? Yeah. So he had some he had some connections to the company that gave him some access where they were willing to do this. Yeah, but still, like, wow. really, they're willing to change their production uh, procedures not to open up a new market, but so that people who are already buying their product will feel better about it. Right. I wonder if there was some blackmail involved. Like, you want to lose all these Jews? I don't think so. I don't think it's so unusual for a company to change its um, its production, um, especially like if it's not something which most of the public cares about. Um, let me tell you the, the postscript to the story, um, and then let's go back to the shuva. The postscript is, the truth of the matter is, Coke still wasn't kosher. Because um, 20 years later... Um, a rabbi went looking into, okay, there's plant oil used instead of this meat tallow. Great. Where does the plant oil come from? Turns out that both the meat, the original tallow and the plant oil came from um, a, a Procter & Gamble facility in New Jersey. Um, and lo and behold, Procter & Gamble was using the same equipment to create both meat tallow and um, the plant-based glycerin. So... Um, so they it, once discovering this, so they fixed that a, problem. It's an equipment problem, not an ingredient problem. It is an equipment problem, but um, but that's just to just highlight how difficult it is to nail down all of the various parts of modern food production because um, food can be produced all over the country or even outside of the country, and you really have no idea what else is going on in those facilities. Um, this is written in the '30s. It took a long time to get to the point where you could start thinking about nailing down all those systems. But it also seems like, especially in America, there was an interest in getting to that place, getting to the place where you could really say with 100% certainty, this food is fine, I know the entire process from beginning to end. Um, but getting back to the chuba. Okay, what, what do you notice about the chuba? Like, what, what jumps out of you? Or what is, what is interesting to you about it? Building on the specific part, I mean, it seems like that you know, there's sort of this key role played by the chief chemist of the state of Georgia, who I'm guessing at that time, especially, is probably not Jewish. Yeah. Um, and, you know, by it, although it's interesting because at the end of the day, yeah, I, when I was, when we were starting to read it, I was thinking, I thought it was going to go to like the same, you know, like the like rulings on like Reddit and stuff that's like, oh, well, this is a, I don't, what's, what's the part, the minimum part? Like, one, this, one in 60? Yeah, well, it's, yeah, so it's like one in a thousand, right? And so I thought that they were it was they, they were doing this examination to do that, but then the examination actually doesn't matter at all in the end, which is right. which is interesting in itself. Right. The problem the problem and what I cut out of this chuba is that it's normally one in sixty, but there's a notion of a devahamami, like a kind of establishing substance. So like if you have a tiny part of something, but it's essential for that part to be present in order to get to the end result, then it matters even if it's a much smaller amount. Um, and there's a machloka, there's, a, there's an argument about whether, whether this is the case, but Rabbi Geffen suggests that mm-hmm. there's, enough, there's enough support for this idea of the Ramami that it, it's still a problem. So why did he do the analysis in the first place? Um, to find out that there was any. Yeah, to find out there was a problem. I mean, the way he ends up is to say there, there is, in fact, a problem. Um, but if he already knew what to look for... Right, I mean, I mean, it's so like what, if none of it was there in the final product, I wonder if the answer would have been different. Oh, he knew it was part of production. He didn't know if it ended up in right. the final product. Is that what's good? That's, That's my guess. Yeah, um, I'm not sure. I'm not yeah. sure. If, I mean, yeah, I'm not sure, but I'm not sure if it matters. Um, there's certainly, even if it doesn't end up in the final product, there's still reason to suggest that it shouldn't be used. Um, you also have this really interesting claim which he makes twice um, that. Everyone's already drinking it. It's become an insurmountable problem to induce the great majority of Jews to refrain from partaking in this drink. Um, that that is part of the story, and it's this is something you see in many 20th century responsa, um, and, and some older ones, and some older ones as well, where you're really concerned. Like I can't just tell everyone that they're that they're violating Judaism, that they're violating the law, um, and so he has a real kind of like humanitarian interest in making coke kosher. Um, you see the same thing in a lot of response about um, Arabian, about like um, how far should you expand, extend the boundary, how far should you create loopholes in the rules of Arabian. And a lot of the question is like, do you want people to just be walking around on Shabbat outside of Arab? Um, because they're going to do it anyways. So um, 
that's a major concern. Do you want to spend more time but on that's, that? Yeah. That's, that, that idea is always within the context of like a constituency that's generally faithful and sees itself as faithful to these laws. That's true. It is normally that. I wonder, I wonder I'm not sure um, whether they're also thinking about Jews who are um, kind of going off of there. I think it means something different in 1935 than it would in 2014. I think like we would assume that there are lots of Jews who are going to do whatever, no matter what. But in 1935, you might actually be thinking, like, there's a lot of Jews who are doing some of the stuff that we do, and why create one more area in which they're violating the law? Maybe. I don't know enough about the demographics of America in the 1930s to say whether that's true. Um, okay. Cool. Um, now... Another example where you have a similar dynamic where there is a problem um, with a substance, a kind of revealed problem, um, is has to do with smoking. Um, it's a little bit of a different case because really it isn't, it's not so much the complexity of the process, but it's the complexity of the ingredients themselves and what they do that has been revealed. Um, and it's revealed kind of at a late date. So, you know, everyone in America in the 60s has to kind of deal with the fact that smoking is actually really bad for you. Um, and 1960, 1964, there's an official statement by the Surgeon General. 1963, they're, like, finishing up the, com- the committee meeting. So, like, this Chuva by Moshe Feinstein is written um, in the wake of an initial statement that has been made. Um, and he writes... This is, very, this is the entire Chuvah. It's very short. On the matter of smoking cigarettes, since there is a possibility of making oneself sick from them, one should use caution with them. But to say that it is forbidden because of, because, um, of a sakanta, um, because it is life-threatening, since many people are already accustomed, uh, the Gemara says in this case, God protects the simple. And in particular, there are many Torah giants from past generations and our own generation who smoke. In any event, even for those who are stringent and concern themselves with danger, there's no prohibition on before a blind man, meaning there's no problem with, like, it's not, it, you're not creating a problem for someone. Is there, how do you say that in English? Like, before a blind man, not Some, someone. Somebody walk, right? Yeah. yeah. So you shouldn't... Which is but itself, I don't, I don't think it's like a fixed idiom outside of the context right. of people who know it from Jewish yeah. sources. So you're Although not, Christians do seem to have that notion. Yeah. You're, right. you're, not, ena- you're not being an enabler, you're let's not, say. Yeah, right. Um, in offering a, a fire or a match to someone who is smoking. So it's, it's basically fine from a man's perspective. Um, but, yeah. Wait a minute. That, the using caution and being stringent implies that the getting sick from cigarettes is the sort of thing that's like noticeable and relates to when you last had a cigarette or how much you're smoking or whatever. Right? If you're giving yourself lung cancer... How are you being stranded? Like, that, that doesn't make any sense. This only makes sense if the kind of sick he's imagining is, like, you start coughing a lot if you smoke too much. So you should stop smoking because you'll stop coughing. I think it means for people who are, like, the person who's offering a match. But, I mean, even at the beginning of it. Hmm. Because there's a possibility of making oneself sick from them, one should use caution with them. The only way to make sure you no, don't no, cancer... No, no, no. To... Uh, should use caution with them, I think, means to refrain from them, right? The Hebrew is, min which I think means not to... Right, you're saying from a non you know, like, this is not my halakhic opinion, but, you know, they're not good for you and you shouldn't be smoking them. But I'm not going to say that it's forbidden to smoke them. Um, which is also interesting that, like, just in response to the ways in which rabbis kind of indicate disapproval without using their rabbinic authority. And, uh, um, so... You know, I, I don't really know exactly what to do with this shuva. I think it's interesting both in that this, there's kind of this reveal now of cigarettes as being problematic and, and it's starting to think seriously about what are in cigarettes. Um, even today, I would say, uh, cigarettes kind of are on this boundary between being, like, between food and being something else. Um, what you see that is, if you look on the previous page, um, a couple years ago, Rabbi Vajio Saif, uh, Shalom, his kashit organization decided to give hechshers to cigarettes for Pesach. And you see there's a, like a little band on it where it says Kosher Pesach. 
um, so you know. But there's not generally hectares for rest of the year. No, I mean in general, there's not hectares on. Say, and other other agencies responded by saying we don't give, you know, we don't give hectares to poison. Yeah. Um, so it kind of falls in the space in between. I'm not sure. You know, what does it have to do with technology? This is a good question. I, it's technology in that. Um, the cigarettes are produced in a manner which is pretty opaque. Um, there's a lot of ingredients in cigarettes. Like they're very high, they're very sophisticated products, um, and that there's a question of like how much do we care about that? Both in terms of it affecting people's health and in terms of just is it kosher? Um, I'm not sure. Like I can say based on those sources though, like there's a, an approach that these sources have taken. Like. There, there does seem to be some engagement with um, with cigarettes um, and even the cigarette making process, but I'm not sure exactly what is here. It's not as clear cut as the COVID pill example. Um, yeah. If you have if you have thoughts about like what is what else is going on here or interesting things that are going on here, um, I feel like it's important, but I'm not sure exactly how. Um, the next example is aluminum tray. We're gonna skip for now. Um, let's look at something. Um, Ezra and I looked at this a little bit uh, on Shabbat when we went over the automation sources. Uh, and I'm happy to, if you guys want to do those sources as well, the rest of the water wheel stuff, I'm happy to talk with you about it um, and to find a time to, to do the rest. Um, but this is kind of a, a back and forth that goes on about, uh, about electricity early on. So we already re read one source that deals with electricity um, that where a scientist is engaged. Um, Part of the issue with electricity is a question of rabbis just fully understanding what the technology is. Uh, it seems like pretty early on they're aware that fire is not quite the right way of thinking about it. But then the question is, so what is going on when I use electricity? And even today, I think like, you know, we now have this innate sense that electricity is something that you don't do on Shabbat. But I think it's like it's at the point where we are not even thinking, well, why is that the case? And is that the case for both you know, fans and light switches and smartphones or electric wheelchairs or e-readers or whatever else it is. Um, well, the, um, the conservative rabbinical council didn't try to right. look into something like that. So in the end of the last sort of sheet packet is, is the kind of their conclusion because it's great. They do a really good job of kind of breaking down those barriers and thinking about, like, what are the different reasons here? Um, but so one of the first responses, one of the first uh, attempts to engage with this is written by Rabbi Huda Rosenberg, um, a rabbi in Montreal um, in the 20s. And he writes this long thing about it. And he, he comes out on the side of saying, you know what? I should be able to turn on and off lights on, on Yontif. Not on Shabbat, but on holidays. Um, because it's transferring? Because of the, tr the idea of transferring a flame. Because um, oh, the flame's on at the power yeah. of the right? Um, so the the response he gives is long and pretty technical, which makes sense for this class. Um, but just to read a little bit of it. Um, if you look on page twelve, on the uh, on the third paragraph. So in the first paragraph, I'm sorry, in the second paragraph, he kind of says, "Okay, so we're talking about carrying a flame. So first of all, it's not quite the same as, as an electric light. A light is not quite a flame because it's not it's not a flame in the same way." Um, even the kind of rabbinic um, extensions of that idea, like there is an idea where you can't kind of rub things together, or you know, put something in the, in, put a piece of metal in the oven and make it glow and hot, which you could analogize to a light bulb. Even that isn't quite the same. Um, what he says in the third paragraph is, one who performs the act of pressing a button is certainly not able to produce two electrical currents through his actions, since there is a prohibition of carrying a flame on Shabbat. It is fitting here to say that the ruling is in accordance with the Talmudic principle of neither this one nor that one is unable to perform their prohibited action alone, since we follow the opinion of Rav Yochanan and Rav Meir that they are both liable for such an act. Meaning, the, so the you and the other one are you, turning on the, on the flame, and the guys down at the power plant who are sending this to you, or even the electricity itself. As if, like, they need to do an extra shovel of coal because you flipped the switch on. Right, so... Um, um, for any time that two copper wires in the wall of the house are disconnected, the plant worker is unable to transfer fire and illuminate the house with electrical light without the action of pressing the button. 
Similarly, the one pushing the button in the house cannot transfer the fire and electrically illuminate his house if work at the plant momentarily ceases, producing the two types of current. I'm not sure if that's true. I'm not sure if, you know, momentarily ceasing work makes a difference. Um, but leave that aside. Therefore, it is prohibited on Shabbat. But on holidays, when there is no prohibition of transferring fire, and we instead only need to rule on the prohibition of creating a fire, this is certainly similar to the case of this one can perform the action and this one cannot, since only the powers in the plant with their machines, are able to produce the two electrical currents, whereas the one in the house, even if he presses the button for the rest of his life, will not produce any current. It's also interesting, it's a, he's pressing a button, right? Like, they're not, they're not switches yet, they're buttons. Um, the one who pushes the button is only a supporting agent in order for the two electrical current flow into the light bulb and combine and create illumination. And in the Talmud, several Amoraim state that being a supporting agent is not really agency. So this actually ties into our previous class as well. Um, about automation, in that there's a suggestion here that your activity by turning on the light is really nothing in comparison, or is really not itself, is not sufficient um, in a way that the, um, insufficient to, to turn on the light. There has to be something else there. I think of this when it comes to mechanical electrical timers. Um, right, like I might want to save electricity by having my light turn off at night and my living room light turn off at night and come back on before I wake up in the morning by means of a timer. Well, what if I set, forget to set the timer properly? Well, the, all I have to do to set it is take a tiny little plastic bag and put it in a tiny little plastic gear. Right. Like, that has nothing to do with the, like, entire flow of electricity through the grid. Right. And something that, um, if we have, a, like, a couple minutes, we'll look at um, uh, an area where this talks about Shabbat. This seems like a lot of a lot of Shabbat rules have to do with not just what are you accomplishing, but like how does it feel? Like viscerally, how does it feel? Like if you think about the way that Shabbat is organized, um, you could have organized Shabbat and just said like, okay, what can't you do on Shabbat? You can't do any agriculture. You can't do anything involving you know, your, your flocks. Um, but it's, it's not set up like that. It's set up by talking about individual actions. Um, because like the, really the prohibition lies at that level, like the visceral level of like how does this feel? Um, this response uh, is kind of shot down by Roshulman Zalman Arbach, who writes this book, Moray Eish, where he says, no, you, this, you can't do this. Um, and then, kind of in line with, the, uh, with Rabbi Geffen's um, rationale, there's this really amazing letter written by Rabbi Rosenberg to Rabbi Arbach, saying, like, you can't just say that you can't use electricity. That's not okay. And he says, your Torahship knows that I also realize that here, in the case of electricity, there are factors tending towards prohibition and towards permission. However, there is a great obligation on the part of the rabbis of this generation to be on the side of permission as much as possible. For just as it is an obligation to say something that will uh, be obeyed, so it is an obligation not to say something that will not be obeyed. For this, uh, um, prohibiting turn electric lights on and off on Jewish holidays is a decree that the majority of the community is unable to uphold, and the masses will certainly not listen to the voice of the rabbi to prohibit. Why well, does say that about holidays and not about in um, there's like what there's like ten right. hundred right. I mean, like, It doesn't feel like that big of a deal. Yeah, but he seems he's very adamant about this, and he says in the last paragraph. Uh, on page 13, the second paragraph, page 13, if they decree upon you the punishment of hell for this, it would be better for me to be in hell along the myriads of Israel who light and extinguish electricity on holidays rather than to be in paradise with the elite who instead of loving righteousness yeah. have chosen love of witness. So it's like you know, this picture of like him in hell like with all these people turning on and off lights. Um, but he sees himself as like being on the side of good. Um, both of these rabbis are entirely engaged with the mechanics of electricity, with like thinking... What is going on in the power plant? Um, even in the 20s, like, there's a lot of sophistication in terms of like the different currents running back and forth. What is happening in the switch? Like They're really, really thinking about this um, in a way that actually takes longer for food. It takes longer to do this for food um, than it does for electricity, maybe because for food, you know, every plant is different, whereas for electric lights, it's more or less the same principles operating throughout the entire system. Um, right, and also... In every generation, there was a notion that, like, our parents cooked and ate food, but something like electricity could really feel totally brand new. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot to bring this before uh, when we were doing the food part, but um, the kind of end result of the tendency in the 20th century to deal with 
food in a more and more precise way is um, OU sells these mashkiach manuals. Um, collect them all. I think there's five of them. So there's one uh, OU manual for baking industry, OU manual for checking fruits and vegetables, OU manual for the oil industry, oil manual, OU manual for the fish industry, OU manual for the food service industry. Um, they're really cool. Um, they're mostly not about halacha. They're mostly about this is what goes on in a bakery. This is what goes on in, um, you know, in food service. When you, This is what goes on with fish. Like, it's about you have to know enough about the way that these factories are working so that you can properly determine whether they are doing their job or not. As an example of something which... There's nothing about um, butchers here. Presumably that's like... There isn't. I don't think they have a book about butchers. Partially because... Butchery is just much more care- slaughter is much more carefully controlled, anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, so, for example, like in the baking industry, one thing they point out, which you might not have known otherwise, is um, bakers sometimes create par of goods, sometimes they create milk of goods. Um, you need to know whether the equipment they use for par of goods is compatible with the equipment they use for milk of goods, because it might happen that you know they ran out of par of pans and they use a milk of pan. Um, in its place. So one of the requirements, um, if you want to say that a certain food is hard, is that there are there is no equipment on the premises that is milchik that could be substituted. Because you, the mashkiach is not going to be around all the time. Um, so there has to be some assurance that there is no easy way for a problem to resolve. Um, so that's like a kind of sophistication and a knowledge of the food industry, which is really, um, it took a long time to get to that place. Um, and now they're there. Um, can you talk about one last thing before we go? And this is like, this is uh, a question that has no answer to me. Um, uh, complexity in technology is not just a new phenomenon. There are also technologies in the ancient world which are complex. Um, and one of them is weaving. Um, if you went to Jewish day school, you probably remember at some point someone explaining to you, here's what a loom is, here's what it looks like because of this one Mishnah in Shabbat, which says that among the 39 categories of work that cannot be done are these ones that are relating to the weaving process. Um, separating two threads. Separating two threads, setting up the heddles. Um, so we're going to be talking about that for a few minutes. Um, one of the really interesting things about this discussion is we're not the only ones who find this boring. It seems like there was very little discussion about this at any point. Um, the Gemara on this Mishnah doesn't talk about these weaving things at all either. And she doesn't want to talk about them. Um, you know, could they have already been obsolete by that time? No. So I looked into it. Um, there is. It seems like they're using a, a newer technology uh, at that point um, for for looms, um, but they're also aware of an older technology. And there's actually a few archaic instances in the Mishnah where. Um, people are using a technology which actually wasn't current at the time of the Mishnah for, for weaving, especially women. Um, there's a person who argues that this is because women are supposed to be represented as antiquated, as like being in the home, and you putting them in front of this old loom kind of symbolized that. I'm not sure if I buy that argument, but um, it's there. Um, but both of these employ the same technology, meaning like the way in which this is described, the kinds of activities, so like setting up the warp like, if you imagine, like, what a, what a loom is, there's two types of thread. There's the warp, which is, like, the taut threads, and then there's the woof, which is the thread that you loop through the warp. Um, and the vatemirin, these pedals, are these holes that you put the warp through. This is, I can't do this with my hands. There are these holes that you put the warp through, um, and they move the different threads of the warp up and down so that you can push the woof through it back and forth. Um, so what is prohibited from the perspective of the Mishnah is, first of all, setting up those warp threads, um, and then also setting up two batanirin, like putting putting two warp threads through the holes, um, which are basically the same, which are basically like the core principles of weaving, and even as, there's been like huge advances in weaving technology, but they're basically true today too. Um, so that's all there. A couple of interesting things just to note about this um, is even the rabbis in the Middle Ages were a little bit confused about what these malachot were. Um, partially because their looms might have looked a little bit different, but Rashi has one definition. He uses a couple of um, Judeo-Provencal words to describe them. 
Um, one, I think, is ordeer, like to order something. Um, that is pretty clear. Um, Rambam actually seems to get it wrong. Um, the Rambam suggests, um, in his commentary to the Mishnah, that vatenirin uh, are, uh, and this is on the last page, threads interwoven with one another, is a way of weaving with which weavers weave. With the which, uh, this is stupid. Is a way of weaving with which the weaver weaves. And it is called anir, and its name and shape are known by weavers. So it looks up anir, or what it, it's, uh, it's an Arabic word. Um, and it actually doesn't mean what it's supposed to mean. Like, it means the, this kind of ornamental outer part of a, um, of a piece of cloth. Um, presumably because Rambam just wasn't so up on his weaving, because he was kind of as averse to thinking about this as everybody else is. Um, what's even more interesting is something which the Mishnah Burra points out, which I would not have noticed if the Mishnah Burra hadn't pointed out, um, in that at the end of the Shulchan Aruch's discussion of the Malachor and Shabbat that you can't do, he makes this really interesting comment. He says, until this section, we have explained all the basic categories of work and their derivatives, um, as well as the rest injunctions that our sages instituted in order that they be the offense for the Torah, that have been listed in the Shulchan Aruch, with the exception of carrying, which will be explained in the next section. We have remaining only to print a few more basic activities that were not mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch. There are six malachot. There are six like of the thirty-nine malachot which the Shulchan Aruch just does not talk about at all. Wow. These being hackling, spinning, stretching, preparing two heddles, weaving two threads, and dividing two threads. Basically, all the ones that have to do with, with mm-hmm. weaving just are left out of the Shulchan Aruch entirely. Wow. Um, and the, this is like a very long comment he makes, and he basically just all he does for each one is he says like this is what it means, like this because he has to give at least something. So he just gives definitions of each of these malachot. Um, so I don't know why this is. I don't know why. It's, it's an open question, and I'd love to hear answers about why Shulchan Aruch is not interested in talking about this or its possible implications, because there certainly are at least some. My talit was woven on a loom by someone I know. Like, it's perhaps not a common art, but it's still something that happens, right? Yeah. I'm pretty yeah. sure she doesn't do it on Shabbat, like... It is, and um, when I was doing some research, the area where it shows up, if you have, like, you know, um, younger sisters or cousins who are girls and are, like, preteens, you know these things like rainbow bracelets, rainbow looms? So a rainbow loom is exactly what you cannot do on Shabbat. Like, it violates all of the malachot it describes here. Um, And according to some rabbis, if boys are wearing them that's also the Isha, that's a separate problem. Um, but that is like the only recent um, area where it's shown up. But I don't know why it doesn't appear. Maybe it's because it was only women who were weaving. Yeah, um, but women are obligated to observe Shabbat. That's true. It's certainly the, you know, the, the, the men, the male rabbis who have written a lot of this literature rarely shy away from telling women how they should follow that's true. their parts of all that. Yeah. Um, I mean, there might be a kind of snowball effect in that if the Gemara is already not discussing it, Rambam talks about it a little bit, um, that there's just not so much to go on. But you could do something, you know. Um, one of the other results is that some of these Avomelachot, these like kind of basic categories, have no derivatives. Like it's just the Avomelachot. Like the Batemirin, has, as far as I know, it has no toldot, it has no further principles. Um, so. Something to think on. Um, in general, you know, any any area where Shulchan Aruch could have legislated but doesn't is interesting, and an area that's like right at the core of Shabbat itself is especially interesting. Um, but that's what we got. I don't think there's like a strong conclusion from this class one way or the other. I think we're still looking at examples of things. Um, but I hope it's interesting. Can you do one sentence on aluminum? I'm really curious why it's in here. Yeah, I'm going to talk about it later because um, we're going to talk about. Um, artificial products, but the basic issue with aluminum is, it's not whether aluminum is kosher. Like, the, the point is, there are some people, even today, who want aluminum foil that, or aluminum products that have a hefter on them. It's not because the aluminum is not kosher, it's because um, in the process of creating metal shapes, you need a coolant of some kind, or a lubricant of some kind. And sometimes, and those are often oils, and sometimes those oils come from animals, or have animal ingredients in them. The issue is that those ingredients are entering the aluminum at a time when the aluminum is very hot, and they're entering directly. So it's that it's not that they're not kosher, it's that every aluminum pan 
might be trafe and need to be castrated. It's fresh from the factory. And what makes it worse is that because it enters the aluminum at a point when the aluminum is very is so hot, you need a very um, difficult kind of kashering to remove it, or actually you can't kasher it at all. Um, which is which is basically the problem that like neither libun nor hagalah are sufficient because the method by which the the this entered the product was much harder than that and it was also direct. Um, yeah, that's the kind of yeah. short version. But this gets to something we were talking about before in terms of like products that are you know items that are not part of the final product but are still important for the processing method.